0: Metallica, here they come, the kings of metal! Burn? This is Ray Burton and you're listening to Metal Up Your Podcast.
1: Welcome to another podcast. I'm Ethan Luck. And I'm Clint Wells. This is episode 227. And Clint, my friend, it's about time we listen to part two of Mike Gilley's interview.
2: I know everyone's very excited to hear part two from Mike. Uh, it's you know part of our initial conversation. We did a part one a couple of weeks ago. And this is going to cover... I mean, we kind of left off with I Disappear, Saint Eric, getting into the St. Anger era right. with Mike. And so... We're going to talk about all that all the way through Hardwired. And it's as interesting as the first part. I mean, we we talk about all the stuff that you can imagine. It's interesting to talk to when you have a, an engineer to talk about St. Anger, a lot of the Bob Rock stuff, the Presidio. Yeah. We talk about Phil Tal, of course. Um, we talk about uh, you know the, him doing the live Metallica, the tuning room. We get into Death Magnetic with Vultures, Death is Not the End, Rick Rubin, Greg Fiddleman. You know, Live from the Basement, the Brick Walling on Death Magnetic, comping Kirk Hammett's solos. So and much stuff. Just it's So much stuff. And and uh, once again, thanks to uh, the Sweetie Pie that is Met Mixer, uh, Mike Gillis, for coming on the show. And we have some really uh, fun stuff planned for the future with Mike. So we're going to get into that soon. Let's do a little bit of housekeeping. Let's do it. We just did a Patreon Zoom hang. It was a good so time. So let's just start off with that. We had a great time. We do this every couple of months where – and we try to get the time right because we have, you know, thankfully we have a lot of listeners and a lot of them are from different parts of the world. So we're trying to accommodate, you know, for Europe, for, I mean, for for the UK, for Australia even. And uh, it was fun. We had about 30, a little over 30 people hanging with us today. Right. And, uh, you know, all you got to do is just be a patron at any level and you get the invite to that. I wanted to shout out the folks that were in the hang today. Let me know if I miss someone, Ethan. But okay. <laughs> first of all, thanks to Angelo Gonzalez, by the way, who always um, sort of hosts the Zoom Hang. Uh, who also has a John Mayer podcast, by the way, that everyone should check out. Uh, Linda from Austria. I want to thank. We got the two Zach Burks, <laughs> Zach Burkhalter, <laughs> and Zach Burke. We had a fun uh, riff on that today. Ridge Ryan, Simone Katz, who's a new patron. Carl Beard and T-shirt. Ken Hale, Dave Ferraro, uh, Sarah Sobeck made an appearance. Matt Kerr, Cameron Whitlock was in his car driving, hanging with us. Hopefully he didn't kill anybody. He Michael Grovener, who does a Billy Joel podcast. Christian Post, Ascari Monin, uh, Freydens of San Jose, which is my friend Mark Faber, I believe is his last name. Kat was there, even though she couldn't speak. Bobby Annan, Jordan Blackhurst, Ted Overland, John Knight, Jay Middleton, Anthony Broom, and Rosso Sullivan. Did I leave anyone out? Uh, I
1: think you got it pretty covered.
2: If I left you out, it's not because I don't love you. It was an right.
1: accident. If there was if there was if there was one person left out, we we do apologize.
2: Thanks to everyone for hung out today. I wa- I say this every time, but I want to do it more often than we do, just because I really love spending the time with those people. Um, we did get three new patrons. Let's say thanks to them real quick. Josh Tuttle, Simone K, who she was in the uh, she was in the hang today, right? And Kajetil Harbo. Thanks, guys. Hope to see you on the next Zoom. It's that easy. And I had to go because
1: me and Jay Middleton had a guitar lesson. That's right. Yeah, and I, I stayed on for almost another maybe forty five minutes afterwards. Yeah.
2: How'd it go? So I'm guessing for the forty five minutes that after I left,
1: it was just nonstop praise about me. Yeah. It was. Yeah. It was mostly us kind of uh, discussing all the reasons why we missed you.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: You know everything from just like your voice to the uh, to your your look to yeah the the view of HQ two. I mean, frankly, um, 45 minutes doesn't sound like enough time to like fully
2: cover all of those areas. Oh, no. In detail, but. It wasn't enough time for sure. wasn't I mean, enough, was it? Yeah.
1: Well, what I did was I actually told everybody, there was maybe about 12 of us left. I told everybody that maybe we should do another Zoom tomorrow without you just so we can elaborate on the reasons we missed you. <laughs> well here's the deal we have a lot of fun over
2: there uh so if you want to get involved it's just another perk you get let's talk about the news real quick more kirky kirk news he's in the news a lot he's been in like the news a lot when they're they've kind of been a little quiet but uh so we talked about his guitar that was for auction th- the from the one video right it sold for hundred and twelve thousand dollars. I, I just barely got outbid man like
1: the evh guitars sold for like less than half of that. It's it's interesting. It's pretty wild. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like, like when we talked about, you know, the previous episode, even though that's not a heavily toured guitar, I mean, that's an iconic guitar. I mean, it's from their yeah. very first music video they ever made. Well, what's funny is like all the comments, you know, <laughs> the fucking
2: comments, man. Oh, In the comments, it's a lot of people being like, uh, I can't believe Quirk. Hamm- someone called him Quirk Hammett. Oh I can't God. believe I can't believe Quirk Hammett's guitar sold for so and so. That's just simply overpriced. I'm like, dude, if someone bid that much for it, it's not overpriced. That's it's an auction. That's what it went for. Um, no one. It's not like that was the price tag. Someone purchased it for that, so right. it
1: is worth that much. If someone bought it, if Kirk Hammett was a no-name guitar player right now, like living in Hawaii or California, just playing that guitar fucking Hawaii and he put it on Craigslist it might be worth let's say I don't know a thousand bucks just guessing here but he's Kirk Hammett from Metallica it's gonna go for a lot
2: I love how just the internet has really just highly tuned everyone to snark yeah this is like the fucking quirk Hammett he's quirky that's why I call him quirk Hammett Uh, get it uh uh, anyway
1: quirk Quirk Hammett
2: ma I I turned Kirk's name into quirk because he's quirky he's a quirky guy and, uh, anyway it, the meatloaf bring Mach. the meatloaf hungry uh so anyway his, his guitar sold for one dollars i i'm sorry to hear that you were just barely out bid but um uh, you, you know you live you live to bid another day
1: my friend well listen now i have a uh, 112 four hundred thousand 000 that i could bid yeah, on something else so exactly
2: uh the next thing that's pretty cool is uh listener and friend of the show, Tyler MacArthur, is sending us a couple of bags of Kirk's Greeny Blend Coffee. And uh here's what's gonna happen with those bags. One of those bags of coffee I'm going to use for my own personal ingestion and and uh and pleasure. Okay. Any, an injection. And yeah, I'm not gonna heat it up and drink it. I'm gonna be injecting it. Right. Um you know, uh, fuel style. And, uh, but the other one we're going to give away on the show. So I'm excited about that. We're going to, we're going to find some stuff to give away. I also wanted to thank, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this on the show, but Eric Daliger sent me a Metallica care package of a bunch of books, a bunch of Metallica tab books and like books about the band. Awesome, Like a hardwired tab book. I think like a black album tab book. Um, Amazing. and we're going to be giving those away on the show too. So thank you, Eric. Thank you, Tyler. We appreciate all you sweetie pies out there who, Send us uh, stuff to give away. We always pay it forward, and uh, you know that's what we're going to do with that stuff. The socials, they know, they know, right? They know that we're on the socials, right?
1: What? What, what are socials? What are that's those? Anywhere,
2: <laughs> you can find us all that stuff. We have the Discord, which is basically like a metal Up your podcast message board. You can get involved, meet a bunch of uh, nerds like yourself from all over the world. They're always having a good time over there. to dip in every once in a while. Uh, the easiest way to get hold of us is the. Uh, gmail account metal up your podcast show at gmail.com we got a bunch of sweetie pie messages oh yeah in the last week that uh, i'm excited to read so let's do that now in what we lovingly refer to as the email corner
1: let's go our first email is from brian gibbons short and sweet Talking about part one of the Mike Gillies interview. The Mike Gillies interview was outstanding. Talk about a deep dive. Well done, my friends. Well done. Short and sweet, man. I love it. Thank
2: you, Brian. We appreciate that feedback. We got a lot of positive feedback saying the similar stuff. And I wish we could
1: take more credit for it, Ethan, but, you know, it's Mike. He did the talking. I mean, he, he, he listen, we asked a couple questions and he had, he had an encyclopedia Britannica worth of knowledge to bestow on us. And the thing is, we,
2: you know, we didn't even really, we were scratching the surface of all that's available. All right. So thank you, Brian. Appreciate that. I think you're going to enjoy part two. Uh, Our next email is from Stan Pearl, who I know was bummed that he could not make the Patreon Zoom hang today. So we'll get you next time, Stan. Oh, yeah. Stan the man. So uh, he wrote in and said, Dearest Clintonian J. Wellington, the Fifth Esquire. And Etheridge Thornton Von Luckingston, the fourth. Oh, I love he says, it. I beseech thee for thine audience and the reading of this electronic scroll. <laughs> uh, he says, all right, enough nonsensing around. I've been meaning to write in again ever since the Deep Cut Dives episode, but life got a bit nutty for a while, as life tends to do. I wanted to let you know how much I loved those episodes, and I hope you do more. I agree that learning to play songs increases appreciation for them, and it's what makes music so deep and magical. I recently learned how to play holier-than-thou, thinking it would be relatively easy, but instead gained an appreciation for Jason's picking—Stan's a bass player, by the way—as it is more challenging than meets the eye. Uh, This also happened to me for playing in the band Pit for some local musicians, and I discovered a love for show tunes as a result. Oh, so I guess he was playing in like an orchestra pit for like a— Oh,
1: like like, like, like the pit band.
2: Yeah. None of that would have been gained if I hadn't taken the plunge to try something new and different. Very cool. He says, fast forward to the latest episode with Mike Gillis, and that is easily one of your best ever. Mike is incredible. I gained so much insight into Metallica's creative process, and it had a direct impact on my own songwriting. The past few months, I've felt progressively more and more burnt out, and I couldn't figure out why. But hearing Mike talk about how Metallica primes the pump throughout the day and goes into creative bursts later lifted such a weight off of me. I suddenly realized that I've been using my creative time to do technical things like struggling to track songs instead of creating, which is what really fuels me. Looking forward to changing how I operate and enjoying songwriting again, and it's all thanks to Metal Up Your Podcast. So grateful for this show and what you guys do to give us access to people like Mike that just continue to deepen our knowledge and enjoyment of this amazing band. As the YouTube channel Two Rocking Granny says, Metallica isn't just a band, they're an event. And you guys take us to the event every week He says, by the way, here at the end, by the way, Clint's riffing on the mechanic voice a few episodes ago really flew under the radar and needs to be highlighted. (laughs) It was hilarious, and I was so impressed with how quickly he carried that whole tangent with one line after another. That is real talent. Ethan is also highly talented with quick wit that also tends to go under the radar. Thank you. I love his quiet and quick comedy style to compliment old clinty Pooh. You're a top-notch comedy team. All right, signing off for now. Thanks again, and stay funky, brothers. Yours truly. Stand the man pearl
1: I mean are we are we gonna do a comedy tour one of these days
2: I mean yes let's just plain I'll just plainly say yes I'm not gonna say no here's what I'll say about the Clinton Ethan comedy tour though when we did that so there was a Metallica night that black and whiskey put on in Nashville I'll never forget this Ethan yes and we were tapped by the black end people who we're still friendly with we love them over there and they've sent us bottles of whiskey and they sponsored our last party and all that stuff. But they invited Ethan and I to do trivia for a Blackened night at Correct. a bar that we both love called The Crying Wolf here in town on the east side. And a band played and those dudes listened to the show Fade Fade to Blackened was
1: the tribute band. Yeah, great great live band.
2: They played and they gave away some whiskey, blah blah blah. Ethan and I got up to do trivia, but here's the deal awkward. Not Rivers. a lot of people there knew the show. And we were doing all of our normal stuff, and yeah. it did not go well, dude. That was a rough crowd.
1: There was like, there was like one dude that knew the show, and he was kind of like heckling us in a fun way. Yeah, you know. And so I, I think that was a bit of like an icebreaker, but it was it was awkward. It, it wasn't like it's not like when we when we've done our, our normal anniversary parties, and we're and we're in front of our people. You know, it's like our family. Yeah, totally. It's so much easier. This this was it. it was it was tough. It's amazing how much funny you are when the people already like you. <laughs> Isn't that weird?
2: <laughs> uh I'm glad he like my mechanic voice. That I will tell you, Stan, that mechanic voice really pissed off this one guy who like trolled me for, you know, for making fun of I guess he was saying I was making fun of rednecks or something. I'm like, dude. I've spent half my life in a fucking trailer park in Montgomery, Alabama. I am a redneck motherfucker.
1: <laughs> Welcome to my life. <laughs>
2: um, but I'm glad he appreciates that. And I agree with him. You have a very, um, you and I, I think, do work well together because you have a very, like, under the radar, quick wit under there that I think adds a lot of spice to the show. So, y- yes, I do. Yes, I do. I'd like to thank Stan and I'd like to thank you and I'd like to thank the Academy. Oh, and, the, uh, man. Is that the play it off music that I'm hearing
1: or is it? That- yeah, I, I, yeah I, th- I think it is. I think I'd it's like to thank uh,
2: James Hetfield. Okay, I guess I guess they're pulling
1: me out. Uh, thank you, Stan, for the email. I appreciate it. <laughs> thank you, Stan. Our next email is from Stephen Riley. It says, Hey, guys. Thanks for putting together such an awesome show about my all-time favorite band. You've been a big help in keeping me positive during the hardest year of my life. I was diagnosed with a neurological disorder called FND in September and playing Metallica songs, relearning the solos, and listening to like-minded guys like yourselves. The Bolt... And Torbin <laughs> on his flying carpet has been very therapeutic for me, of course. That's cool. The bolt is therapy, let's be honest. I know. Uh, he goes on to say, I'm trying to raise awareness for uh, FND doing live recorded gu- uh, guitar playthroughs on YouTube on my channel, uh, Riley, which is spelled R-E-I-L-L-Y, uh, 1771. I'd love it if the Metal Paper Podcast family would give me a watch and maybe some suggestions for what songs they'd like to see. But understand that uh, if you don't think I'm at the level that deserves promotion, I won't take it personally.
2: Oh, uh, man. I'm happy cool. to
1: promote it. Of course. Yeah, well, we just did. Uh, he says, honestly, keep up the good work. Love the covers, covers albums, too. Um, thanks for your time, Stephen Riley. Well, dude, listen, we're happy to promote. We just did. Yeah. We'll, d- we'll do it again. If you're on YouTube, go to riley one seven seven one. And uh, check out these guitar players. And you know what we can
2: do? We'll put a we'll put a link to it in the notes. You know, so however you're listening to this episode, if you look down in the notes, there'll be a link to Riley's right. YouTube channel. And uh, I'm always happy to do stuff like that. You know, we get a lot of requests from bands I've never heard of yeah. to like feature their new album. I don't. We've never done that, obviously, and I never will. Not because I don't want those bands to succeed, but I mean, we probably get five of those every couple of weeks. Yeah, and uh, it makes no sense to me uh but steven who is a fan of the show who's playing metallica for a good cause on youtube happy to share that for sure yeah of
1: course that's that that's an awesome you know it's an awesome way to spread the word you know about what, what you're you've gone through with uh fnd which i will admit right now i have no idea what that is so i'm happy how to, dare uh, you hey first of all first of all how dare you second of all i don't know what it is either Okay, well, how dare you? And also, <laughs> I'm happy to learn. I I, w- I would love yeah. to know what this is. You know, I, yeah. and that's what raising awareness is all about. So we're happy to help. Absolutely, absolutely. Thanks, Stephen, and and good luck with everything over there, homie. Oh
2: yeah. Uh, our friend Hallet Marie Berg writes in, guys. Well, but, but first of all, the, the subject to her, um, the subject to her email was when a when a woman loves a podcast.
1: <laughs> Nice work, nice work. (laughs) She
2: says, guys, hope you're doing great. Seems like things are moving towards the new normal over in the States. We're not there yet. She's in Norway, by the way. Uh, She says, but I can see a soothing light at the end of the tunnel here too. Nice reference there to No Leaf Clover. Nice. Then again, we all know how that can turn out. That's true. It could be a freight train coming your way. That's right. Anyway, it's been a while. Just wanted to check in remind you that you are much loved and appreciated. I wish I had the time to hang out on Discord, but it just doesn't add up this year. She's got a lot going on because she's a teacher and she's got kiddos and husband she's, she's got life going on just like we all do. She says, personally, the last few weeks have been an odd mix of frustration over new lockdowns being forced to change plans for classes the day before because of new guidelines, et cetera, but also a new and awesome routine that affects my life in the most positive way you can imagine. She says twice a week, I get the time off from the husband and the kids to go for a 90 minute run with metal up your podcast in the ears. To me, this is heaven. She says, I think I wrote a similar kind of email a year ago, and I now have further proof that your podcast actually makes my life better. It really does. I'm so grateful for the work you do, and you've been killing it lately. Man, so sweet. Wow. She says, a few thoughts on the latest episodes. She says, you stole my joke. I was planning to write in and make the title when a, gr- when a girl loves a podcast. She says, I did anyway, but I'd feel more original if Ethan hadn't already screamed when a Patreon loves a podcast, which you did. You did. You <laughs> cracked the door open on that joke, my friend.
1: Well, listen, that's my quick wit.
2: Responding to sort of my puzzlement about now that we're dead, which I've expressed through the years on the show, um, she says, I've always thought about this as a song about letting a part of you die and the possibilities this brings up to lead a better life. She says, I'm not religious myself and don't believe anything of us lives after death. This may have affected my understanding of the lyrics. Yeah, I think that's a cool way to see it. Like you have to, part of you does have to die to, to, to I guess, to be reborn in different ways, to move right. on to the next the next thing, Right. Of course. Just like I have to cut this goiter off so that I can <laughs> heal. I don't know where I'm going. I don't even know I what a goiter either. is. Uh, she says the Mike Gillis episodes are so good, uh, which you were able to hear part two if you were a patron. Right. She says a big bonus is that he says, you know, kind of like James, and I love it. And she says a big yes to the Metallica tattoos and to turn it into an episode. Have you given any additional thought into your tattoo the area and the actual content of the tattoo.
1: I'm right now. I'm leaning towards just the M, like the the old school Ooh. old school. Just the M, like kind of how James has on his hand, like right, yep. right, right kind of between his thumb and his index That's finger. That's pretty cool. Be real simple. Um, as far as location, I don't have a ton of real estate left, but I do have some. Uh, maybe somewhere on my leg. I've got. A, I've, I only have like two or three other band tattoos I've ever gotten. Uh, one's uh, whole side of my leg is the uh, the Clash. Uh, I've got a rocket from the crypt tattoo, but um, it might go down there somewhere. But yes, we should make it a full episode. Like my, my friend Ian, who, who, who we can have do these tattoos, will be, have no problem with us bringing in some recording gear.
2: Did you know that the Ninja Star logo, okay, that I'm thinking about getting, mm-hmm. did you know if you look closely that Ninja Star is made up of those M's? Oh yeah, totally. Oh yeah. I remember learning that a couple of years ago via the podcast and that blew my fucking mind.
1: Oh when yeah, when you at first when you see it you're like, Okay, that's kinda cool. It you just look, looks like closer. a ninja star. Yeah. Oh no, I yeah, I feel like not to be cocky here, but I feel like I've known that for a while. <laughs> 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 uh, oh, I have no, I've known that since <laughs> two thousand fifteen. You fuck. Metal, who
2: ever thought that, you know what, the call was coming from inside the house. Who would have known that the chief of the metal police himself was one Mr. Ethan Luck, my beloved friend and co-host. He knew it for a
1: while. I can't believe you didn't know that. It's more, it's, Uh, uh, the the clue is right in front of your face. uh,
2: Yes, I knew it for a while. Uh, Yes, for a while I've known that. Yes, uh, uh, now the knowledge was inside uh, for me uh, for quite some time, for a while actually
1: oh yes of course yes.
2: P- perfect yes
1: and sometimes when the call does come from in the house you have to listen
2: though no, the call is no the yes the call is coming from the house you see uh y- you know the, the, we trace the call uh and you're in quite a bit of danger because yes the call is coming from inside the house
1: yeah, The a carlson house
2: <laughs> in the carlson boulevard <laughs> Ethan. since you have such knowledge the carlson boulevard yes the metallica mansion yes is it
1: Boulevard or Avenue? Uh, it's actually way.
2: Away. Yes. Lane. Okay. Someone actually is going to write in about that. Uh, Halei ends by saying, I love you guys. Hope to see you on the Zoom hang tomorrow, but I don't know if I'll be able to make it. Have a great time anyway. A big pre-COVID-19 bear hug from Halé Marie. Oh, well, thank you, you so much, Hale Marie. You, uh, you brighten our day when you send emails like that. All of you do. I love all of y'all's emails. Stan, Stan, I got a little warm fuzzy from Stan's email too. Stan the man.
1: I'm feeling more than warm and fuzzy right now. This is amazing. Ooh, you may want to go, you may want to go get that checked out though. That actually, I that actually do- might be crabs. I should go to the doctor? Yeah. Shoot. I, I mean, I was just at the dentist the other day and nothing, everything looked okay, but I should go see an actual doctor.
2: I find it interesting that you and I have both had our like six month dentist cleaning kind of at the same time. Cause I also went to the dentist
1: this last week. Oh my God. Dentist twins. Yeah. Yeah, little dentist twinsies. Every time I, I leave the dentist, quick tangent city. Uh, just, Here we go. I'm just getting, I'm just. I'm just taking the off ramp real quick. <laughs> um, just, just getting some gas and some snacks. Uh, <laughs> I always kind of laugh every time I finish my my normal like you know teeth cleaning, and they know I'm a touring musician, and they know that I'm gone most of the time. You know, obviously pre pandemic, but when they want to book that next one, every time they're like, "So, yeah. um, what date is good for you?" I know. And I go, I don't know. I know. We booked mine. Well, I just go ahead and book them, because what are you going to do? Oh, yeah. No, I know. I tell them, I said, "What? what's six months from now? They're like, it's uh, October 12th. I'm like, yeah. book it. If something happens, I'll I'll reschedule. It's so funny. that I mean, I, I doubt many of our listeners think this is
2: so funny, but it is funny to me. I do the same thing. They were like, "Um, how's October 25th? And I was like, great. I, sure. They're like, well, is there a day that's better for you? No.
1: They're all great because who knows? Tomorrow works, but that's too soon. So well, plus
2: even even aside from gigs, just after this last fucking year, it's like I mean, will the world still be turning in October? I don't know what's going to be happening in October. I don't know. Will will the new current? Will the new currency in the post-apocalyptic Mad Max Thunderdome version of reality? I mean, will currency be teeth? Ooh, it might be. Will you pay for like fishing line and fucking rope with teeth in October?
1: Hey, listen, uh, Clint. I need a new fishing pole and some bait. I can. Tra- I got a. I got a tank of Novocaine over here. I stole. For, I stole from my dentist at my last cleaning before the world went to shit. Will I be
2: bartering with like my fucking hair and teeth to feed my six-year-old in October? It's a real possibility after what happened last year. That's why your hair is so long. Um, maybe we should get back to the emails. Oh
1: right, we're doing that Or
2: okay, or not we, or, did or you not. get enough snacks? What well, did you get enough snacks? Yeah, I guess Are we gonna saying, ask... should we cruise back on? Should we
1: start to merge back onto the uh yeah, we're back on the email highway for sure. Okay, cool. great. Our, our next email is from Cameron Whitlock. Uh, he says, hey Clint Nathan, I really appreciate the video. That was dope. He's of course talking about the, the 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 highest tier on patreon. We will send you a personalized love letter in video form essentially. That's right. And we did that. We did that. And Cameron was actually on the Zoom hang today and he was driving to Nashville. He literally drove a mile from my house to a great record store called Vinyl Tap, which is also a a bar and it's a record store. It's a great spot. Um, Joe and Lizzie from Hailstorm stop by there often and drop off a bunch of signed Hailstorm vinyl for them to sell Mm. just to stoke out their fans, I guess. Nice. Uh, Anyway, so he says, I really appreciate the video. That was dope. Clint, I just realized after four years we have the same initials. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh my God! Uh, I just wanted to to make up for lost time because I've been a listener for almost since since almost the beginning. But I've been a broke college kid up until last year. I live near Nashville, down in Spring Hill. If y'all ever want to get coffee and talk music, because I'm a huge music nerd myself. Well, maybe we will. Well, thanks, Cameron. I wonder if Cameron's come to our parties. If he lives in Spring Hill, Spring Hills, yeah, south of town, Um, yeah, about forty five minutes south or something. And and Cameron's address is eight (laughs) six four we'll be sending uh urine samples out to all the uh, top tier patrons cameron's okay. urine samples of course we're, we're going to send him some of our teeth to exchange <laughs> uh for some music talk I, did, I made that joke to my dentist
2: i was like well in october what if the world's like ends and the, like the only currency is teeth and uh didn't get a great laugh the, he was like the, hey here's the number for my therapist they weren't really primed for like absurd humor yeah, f- featuring the end of the world and the disillusion of their entire industry at 8.30 in the morning, which I get. That's fair.
1: That's fine. My dentists are pretty laid back and, and kind of fun and, and whatever. So yeah. I feel like I some of my jokes go over well at my dentist. Okay, cool.
2: Well, maybe I'll have to fire my dentist then for being humorless. They do a great job on my teeth. I mean, I have a great experience of my dentist and my hygienist, but maybe just for their clear lack of early morning humor, they may have to let them go. Yeah, I mean... It makes sense. All right, our last email is from Amit, who says, Dear Ethan and Clint, my name is Amit Arez. I'm an Israeli musician who moved to the States a few years ago, and I'm now living in Portland, Oregon. I've been meaning to email you for so long. Your podcast has become the soundtrack of all my dog walks for the past year or so. Same with Paul Moak, by the way. Oh, yeah. Uh, And I'm sure my dog Clyde would thank you as well, if he could, for making his walks become roams. Roams.
1: It's like when you walk in your dog. Oh, and then he... And then he takes a dump and the, then and he the, takes and the then poop. He hopefully doesn't die. It's like when you're in a public park and you're walking your dog
2: Clyde and he makes a, a roaming vagabond doo-doo, but you got to pick it up with a bag and then you're sort of holding the hot, the hot stool through the bag and you're walking and you run into your neighbor who's also your dentist and you make a joke about how teeth are going to be currency and you can feel... The poop in the bag, and it's still warm, but it's a little cold outside, so you don't mind, even though it's poop. That's what it's kind of like.
1: It's kind of like that.
2: (laughs) And you go on and so forth. Uh, He says, today, at age 40, after having gone through so many musical phases, I can see that the only thing that never really disappeared from my daily soundtrack is Metallica. And the coolest and craziest thing of all is that even during the years when I had no interest in the newer music they were releasing, I couldn't stop checking in to see what they were up to. And had that constant need for some Hetfield energy in particular, either in audio or video, to keep me sane, centered, motivated to get through another day, power through life's hardships, and as Lars likes to say, and so on and so forth. That type of emotional connection and, dare I say, dependency in the existence of these guys was always so much more than just loving the music. They represented something that I could not shake, uh, even if I wanted to. He says, I didn't, just saying. When you guys sometimes equate fandom to having a favorite sports team, it is truly the closest description one could give, including the fact that one does not have to always be happy or totally in tune with each and every phase of his team's life. It's still his favorite team, and that bond is larger than life and stronger than anything. Well said. Very well. He says, although I still think the first decade of the band was artistically the best, just my opinion, thanks to your podcast, my chakras finally opened and I found myself listening to the later albums. This year, I dove into Load and Reload like never before, and I finally can say that I love both almost completely with the exception of only a few tracks. The sound and soul on those two albums are a completely different level that I was not able to appreciate at 16. Better late than never, probably not would have happened if not for you two. Thanks for that. Sometimes you need to wait a trillion years to be able to listen to something from a different perspective, and it pays off. Thank you for starting this podcast. Metallica fans all over the world are now even closer to one another and I cannot overstate how much fun it is to listen to your show. Cheers, Amit E. The sweetie pie factor, yeah, the sweetie pie factor was quite high this this week for sure. I
1: mean, the, there was some poetry in there. It was beautiful. It really does a <laughs> I'm, bit of poetry in there. I'm emotionally sure. verklempt right now. <laughs> oh my goodness.
2: Joyce loves a good emotional email with poetry. Please,
1: of course. Uh
2: well listen, I want to get to this Mike interview. We've we've yuckity yucked it up enough here. And speaking of sweetie pies, you all met Mike a couple of weeks ago and you're gonna meet him again on part two. We hope you dig it. Um you know it always helps for you to uh post and and post on social media that you're listening to the podcast. You can tag mike i believe his handle is met mixer that's right yeah and uh you can find him or whatever and you can send him a quick message saying hey i heard you on metal pop podcast and i loved it and i love you and i love clinton ethan and i wrote you a poem about my dog clyde and pooping and then he'll read that he'll call james hetfield and read it to james is what he told me
1: right and then james is going to meet that dog and want to take (laughs) him for a walk and experience the same euphoria you feel when you listen to our show uh well you're gonna hear a commercial for patreon and then we're just gonna jump right
2: into our conversation with mike so ethan and i'll come back at the end and uh say goodbye but here we go uh uh check out patreon if you are willing and able and if you kind of like what's going on over there we would uh be grateful to you if you could support the show it would really mean a lot to us especially with what's been going on the last year and it's definitely going to stretch a little bit into 2022 yep um if not no big whoop but after that you'll hear
1: from mike and then we'll come say bye at the end we will it's true <laughs> Hey everyone, this is Ethan and Clint. We're here to tell you about supporting the show via Patreon. That's
2: right. Every week, Ethan and I work hard to bring you the best Metallica content possible. If you think the show has value, consider supporting us on a financial level at Patreon.
1: For $5 a month, or the price of two cups of coffee, you can ensure that Metal Up Your Podcast continues to grow in quality and content. But that's not all. In
2: addition to being able to help sleep at night for supporting your favorite podcast, we've also come up with incentives to say thank you that are exclusively available to patrons. For example, for a pledge of $5 or more, you immediately get free Downloads of every cover Our World Black and EP.
1: Ticket giveaways for shows like SM2 and Slain Castle. Box sets, rare vinyl, Metallica memorabilia like SM2 guitar picks. Email priority, meaning we'll read your email first on the show with a chance to ask guests like Hailstorm, Jay Weinberg of Slipknot, and Metallica Row Crew your very own questions.
2: And the opportunity to come on the show as a guest for our Metal Tales bonus episodes, in which you can tell us. All about any Metallica show you've been to in the past.
1: All this and more for becoming a patron and supporting Metal
2: Up Your Podcast. We couldn't do this show without you. And to everyone on the ride with us, we sincerely thank you.
1: Peace. Adios.
2: (laughs) So let's go from I Disappear to the Presidio. Yes, and then the Presidio with James having to split—that obviously is a little bit of a different chapter. So, what's going on between I disappear in Presidio? Are you like taking other? This is before your full time doing the live shit. So, are you p- taking other gigs with Bob? Are you becoming still learning engineering?
0: All of the above. Presidio was two thousand one, I think. It okay, was early. Right. Yeah, that's and right. And before the whole thing kind of you know had to take a break. Presidio was interesting because they're they you know, they had bought HQ, the studio, but it wasn't ready. Right. So it's like, okay, we're going to do something. Let's go somewhere different. Let's try something different. And it was like, here we are on the third floor, not the bottom floor. You got 20 tons of recording equipment. No, we can't do it on the bottom floor. We got to do it in the top floor.
2: Were you part (laughs) of getting the gear up there?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was, uh, interesting,
2: especially knowing what we know now, which is that it was sort of an ill ill fated session, although some cool shit came out of it, but Obviously, wouldn't go on to finish. He almost had to end up just taking it all out. However, many months later, but pretty cool room though. I mean, pretty cool little tiny armory, like weird vibe.
0: Didn't sound good. I had like yeah. a you know an eight foot ceiling. We were up on the dormitory floor. All right, we couldn't help but notice all the uh, condemned signs on the building saying asbestos toxic do not enter, and we're like, don't record here, Yeah, because I
2: was about to say, <laughs> number one, there's the best asbestos. number two, don't make an album here.
0: Strapping that old building with split type air conditioners because it was hot as you can imagine up there with that console. So we had to put a console up there. We had mostly Bob's gear. I look at that, and it wasn't didn't seem to me like we were on a mission to record an album there. It felt like they are they were writing. That's it felt more like exploration and writing, not not really like, this is where we're going to do the album. So there was a ton of experimentation.
2: How was, um, and this might be just a question I need to ask Bob at some point, but how was he feeling going into that album? You know, you're at that point, he's at 10 years with the boys. He made their biggest album, Mm -hmm. made their some experimental shit, did the ambitious orchestra album. Was he feeling like, let's go in and do another great Metallica album. Or was some of that St. Anger energy already sort of almost like, a cloud above the whole thing from even Presidio.
0: I think you can imagine after that many years, you become best friends. Yeah. Bob was very close. And so when he saw what was happening within the band, he felt compelled to like step up and go, what can I do to help keep this band together? Cause I, you know, I love this band. I love these guys. I I'll do what I can to help. So at that point, now you're a friend and you're not just a musical consultant most people can imagine it's difficult when you when you get that close to yeah. people yeah you know and you see that you know that little bit of trauma what's going on yeah and you and you see that you know with with a, some kind of monster i mean bob bob doesn't want to play bass <laughs> who wants to sit there and play bass i'm supposed to be on the other side of the glass doing my job over there but i'm trying to help you guys out
2: so was it was it ever even a possibility that he would actually take over Was it always just a stopgap? Like, I'm producing, I can... And he can't... The thing that's really cool about Bob is he can play bass. So he's like, I'll produce it, I'll play it, I'll learn all these kind of (laughs) the strangest songs of their career, all that, and and I'll negotiate all the personalities while the band's in a very tense moment. In some ways, it it might be one of Bob's less appreciated albums, even from my point of view, but it is like almost the point where he stepped up the most to be what the band needed him to be. Yeah,
0: I mean, if... People are tying your hand behind your back and telling you sonically they don't want to let you do what you do really well. Right. You know, uh, it's got to be tough. Yeah. Bob played bass, but Bob, Bob's a guitar player. Yeah. So he right. played bass like a guitar player. You know, he wasn't like Robert Trujillo with the fingers thundering. He
2: followed you know. the riffs and kept it very. Simple.
0: Which, you know, if you look at your Metallica history with Jason, that was pretty much what he was asked to do. Mm -hmm. You know, just follow the riffs. Don't get too out there,
2: you know. So, okay. So we're in St. Anger territory. Jason's already gone. Was Phil around during Presidio? He
0: might have been, but I wasn't part of the meetings and stuff that was going on leading up to the return to HQ.
2: Other than the Presidio to you feeling kind of like more like an art, more like a creative writing session, which totally totally makes sense we've done a whole episode on what's kind of called the presidio sessions where we're kind of trying to make sense of that material and it really is there's not much there by way of it is like just a creative experiment they're just working on stuff and
0: yeah i mean you saw some creative video moments but those songs did end up getting a lot more developed yeah and there's they're still sitting in the vault but you know there's nothing from there well i i can recall one riff that was dramatically changed in tempo and key and everything. What riffs that? All that stuff is pretty much there. Um, oh, I would have to think about it I okay. can't, yeah, yeah, I'll tell you next time when I get a chance to jump back at it.
2: You're saying all that Presidio material is kind of like maybe waiting around for a future, maybe a future Absolutely. box set, but it's there. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I it's guess there. they record everything. Yeah,
0: it's there. I mean, it's... Is it worth hearing? It's really interesting because it was so ex- experimental. Things like, you know, like putting, you know, attaching a a ride cymbal to the kick drum head kind of stuff, you know? Wow. Like, we just try and stuff. Whose just, idea was you know, that? I'm not sure. <laughs> I won't embarrass them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I think it's a cool idea. <laughs> it's been done. I mean, it was from the 1930s. It was called a clanger back then. They used to put the cymbal by the kick drum, and there was a thing you could hit with your foot to make it clang right. with the kick
2: drum. Are you at this point, because in the, in the film that we see, you're in the control room, so you are... Yes. You are like the guy making edits, like the big edits in real time, right? Mm-hmm. Was that a kind of a scary jump for you? Like, well, you're no longer in the hallway. You're making the big edits in the, in the, in the room.
0: I mean, no, because I've been working with Bob doing that. It was just, you know, it was clearly if your guitar player is only available for a short period of time to kind of jam. And then at the end of it, when they leave, you have to try and create songs out of this. It very much became Lars's project. With him, it was just all about loops. You know, I played this, I played this, I played that, and he'd have an ID, He'd run out there and play it. I was like, just put it in there, put it in there. You know, so it would be like twelve of these, ten of these, fifteen of these. <laughs> it was like all this, just like edits and and loops and bits. It was it was very much like a like a, what would you call it? Like pasting. I was actually just gonna
2: say we've called we we actually kind of call Saint Anger kind of a copy and paste record. Not even Absolutely. in a bad way, but it does sound very much. The songs are very long. They don't change much. Yeah. So it does feel very much like we have an A and a B and a C section with some transitions and let's just plug all those in. All
0: sections in time. And for me, it would be like, those guys would sit there and go, go to the chorus. And I'd be like,
2: what is the chorus? There's
0: no What's yeah. the chorus? I don't yeah. know. I just go, there's all these parts.
2: How are you doing that if they weren't on a click? Or was that material kind of gridded out a little bit?
0: No, no. No, that was that was the beginning of let's just put shit together and we're not going to fix it. There was like literally no fixing. I wouldn't say it was a a rule, but it was kind of like an understanding. Don't fix it. Don't fuck with it.
2: Was that ever like explicitly said as like a philosophy of the album? Like, hey, this is going to be a rougher
0: sounding garagey thing. I mean, from my perspective, I just remember fixing stuff and having people come in the next day and go, what happened? <laughs> like, put it back the way it was. Interesting. Like, okay, all right. You know. Like
2: meaning cleaning up like a vocal or like a sloppy drum fill or something?
0: Yeah, it was mostly tempos and transitions. Like, you know, you go from one tempo and you can, you know it's an edit. I would sit there and I'd go, well, I can massage that a little bit, you know, to make it less obvious. And it was like, what did you do? That's not what I played.
2: They kind of liked what was fucked up about it. Yeah, which is kind of cool.
0: And the thing is, is a lot of these arrangements were done... With Bob and Lars. So James wasn't part of the arranging thing. Is
2: that typical?
0: No. (laughs) No, no. I mean, James has ideas. He's obviously got opinions on what should happen. And it's, you know, it's collaboration. But I do remember myself being surprised, like shocked, when James would come in and people, you saw it in the movie, they write on a piece of paper ideas for lyric. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? And James in the control room with the microphone. And all of a sudden, he'd start putting together a melody and lyric. And I was like, oh, now I know how the song is. Oh, now I know that's a verse. Now I know what the chorus is. Like, he actually put that thread through that that big pace job. And now it made sense. It was like, how do you do that? Because I didn't. I listened to it for months. And I I had no clue what the song was going to do.
2: Those scenes are fascinating to me. So it's like, it almost seemed like, These aren't master takes, but you're going to be in the control room, which seems a a little odd because people are kind of watching you. He's got an SM7, so you got like a dynamic mic that is directional. And if he's singing to it, it's not picking up other shit. It's not picking up the speakers. It seemed like he would use that way to like write in front of you guys.
0: I mean, the microphone was picking up the speakers.
2: (laughs) So you couldn't use it. You couldn't use any of that stuff, right? Or maybe you could. No,
0: No, you you can't. Oh, really? It's just, yeah, it's just more hard work. You, you can't now suddenly tune the vocal because the leakage tunes with it. Yeah. you hear the song go up and down and whatever it's doing. You know, if you look at the history and you look at all the video that is out there, thank God there's video, so I'm not divulging anything trade secret. Sure. He always sang with speakers.
2: Yeah, that's right. I don't know as much about that side of it, Mike, as you, but mm-hmm. in, the, in the Black Album stuff, I guess what I thought was they'd phased it in a weird way yeah. to where it wasn't you really do. hitting the mic.
0: Yeah. You make a triangle, right? Right. And you send you send him a mono music feed, and one of the speakers is out of phase with the other. So right at that triangle point where the microphone is, it gets really quiet. Right. But he's not in that same even even moving back a foot and singing that loud, you're going to hear the music. It's not going to phase cancel. So it's kind of an old trick, you know. People have been doing that for a while, but it's just the way that he works. I would say 80% of everything I ever recorded with James, he was in the control room. Wow. Holding a microphone with his hand. That SM7. Wow. The SM7. Right? But he, he would at least walk over to the corner. <laughs> you know, like, like I'm going to try and help you out a little bit.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we don't think to about too much here. This is like super inside baseball. But would you just use EQing to carve out everything around his voice? Or did you have like a plug-in even back then that would sort of isolate just his directional vocal? How would you get the background noise out? Or did you just do the best you could and it was
0: kind of yeah you just kind of did the best you could fortunately when he was doing a lot of like the actual intentional singing like this is how the song is these are the lyrics the music was pretty much locked in so you wouldn't really notice the leakage unless you took something out of position yeah you know what i mean like you moved a vocal from this spot and you put it to a different place in the song it's like oh shit the drum beats different oh there's a drum fill You know, that became challenging.
2: How much of the Phil stuff was going on around you? The Phil Tow stuff, like the sort of therapy... uh, A lot of times they're in like the hotel room or they're in that that what looks, I guess, like a little break room, like a lunch room. But then there was a lot of footage of like, he's in the control room. And in some of them, he's even handing over little sticky notes with lyric ideas. Yeah,
0: which, as you can imagine, irritated a lot of people. It was, you know, it was kind of like, you know understand the role that you're here to help people communicate and do it. But when again, nobody wants a fifth band member, you know. And so when that line starts to get crossed, and it's in the movie, the some kind of monster movie, he really felt like he was becoming a member of Metallica and contributing artistically. And it's like a lot of people put up, you know, put up their hand, was like put up the wall and said, Whoa, you that's kind of going a little too far. That was just where that kind of stuff would creep in. And I recall Bob doing the best he could to not have him cross that line. It's like, hey, we just we just sat in the kitchen and talked for three hours. We're coming in here. I've only got James for another hour to work on this idea and song and jam. I don't really want another person coming in and being part of it or slowing that process down. It's like therapy's over. This is music.
2: <laughs> to the exact point you're making, I appreciate that scene in the film where Bob's just being very honest and he's like, I'm just pretty annoyed. I'm annoyed at this whole yeah. thing. He's like, and then you can see the producer in Bob Crump where He's like, sometimes you just have to fucking work hard to get it yeah. done. <laughs> and if you're in a bad mood or you're grumpy, it doesn't matter. I just really appreciated that he was at least putting that back into the room. You know, yeah,
0: and that was Bob's experience years of knowing that you can only really anticipate creativity, like where everyone's being creative and following that an idea. And it's such a bummer when someone steps on it, you know, he slows it down you go, we'll never know what we could have done. And right now I'm kind of pissed because we didn't get, we didn't get to see what was going to happen. It went a different direction. And
1: there's a lot of non-musicians that don't understand that. Maybe a guy like Phil or something, they don't understand that there is, there is that, no pun intended, that zone you get into, you know, creatively. How dare you? I know. You, you know creatively and it, it only takes one little thing to just to break that that creativity cycle that you're that you're about to venture into and
2: mike you've talked about like in your early days of the band you know your whole your whole prerogative was don't gum up the shit for the band like be ready to the, the whole thing was clearing the path
0: yeah so yeah, someone gums it up and it's like facilitate yeah, it, yeah.
2: yeah facilitate yeah. that's right yeah yeah
0: and by and by the way if you guys want to do your homework there's a Phil Toll album out there
2: of songs oh my well, why didn't you uh, tell us it was your favorite album? <laughs> why didn't you send it to us? What's You're it called? Have to dig, but it's okay. online. Did you do okay. all the? Ed- did you do all the
1: editing? Did, for you, it? did you do the digital no.
0: editing for it? No, I'm pre- I'm pretty sure this was probably ten years prior to the Metallica experience. You know, it's got songs okay. called "I'm an Athlete," and <laughs> it's all it's all what's well, all motivational. It's all, but they're songs. They're real, like you know, Michael Bolton style.
1: Oh my goodness. <laughs>
0: But yeah, do your do your okay. research. It's online.
2: I'll find it. Well, you heard it. You heard it. Mel up your podcast. Oh, family. I have the, the next episode. Uh, <laughs> us and Mike uh, yeah. Gillis are going to be going through the Phil yeah. Tile album together. No. Um, okay, so let's sort of wrap up <laughs> Sane. Anger. It's a strange chapter. It really is. We our sort of official position about it. It's our least favorite Metallica album, but it does seem to have been an album they had to make, and they got Robert out of it. I'm kind of a Jason guy just because of how I came through the band, but I do think Robert is what they needed. And I think, and I love Robert. I can't even imagine Robert not being the bass player. So it is a weird album, especially as an audio engineer to have been attached to, because it's it's the strangest sounding album ever made by such a big band, especially a band Mm -hmm. known for the 10 years prior of making some of the best sounding albums, right?
0: Yeah, it was very much, you know, and I heard the word being tossed around, which is deconstructing. Mm-hmm. It was part of movies. We're doing it. Film was doing it. Art was doing it. Hmm. Let's take something. Let's deconstruct it. Let's strip it back and make it raw and see see what happens. You know. And that was that was pretty much it. It was like uh, an adventure. Do I think that there was an intention to create an album like that? Probably not. I think it came about as like through the therapy, the part of like all the personal stuff that was going on. It was more like, this is the reason that we're sitting in a room together, but it's not really the reason we're sitting in a room together. Right. We're really not trying to make a great sounding record here. Yeah. This is just kind of what happened. And if you look at the you know some kind of monster video footage, you'll see Lars and Bob sitting over in the corner, and there's a perfectly set up and well-microphoned drum kit that sounded amazing. When we got to the end of it, Lars... I said, I want to play up there on the stage. You can only use eight microphones. And we got a Vistalite snare. I mean, people say he took the snare chain off, but it wasn't really all the way off. It just wasn't a big part of it. And he beat the shit out of this Frankenstein drum kit with eight microphones on I mean, that's a fifty-eight a SM58 on the kick drum. Right. What do you expect? Which, <laughs> yeah. is, basically a,
2: which is basically a $100, $100 mic. Yeah. Right?
0: But the high-fidelity kit was sitting right there with all the mics on it, like 30 feet away. But it was like, no, I don't want to play on that. I want to play on this.
2: I think I was reading today, trying to read up on you a little bit. Hope that doesn't make you feel weird. That remix of the song, Some Kind of Monster, that kind yeah. of sounds a little more Metallica. You had a part <laughs> in that, right?
0: I mean, the story behind that was, well, we did it in Maui. Randy Staub got on a plane, flew to Maui. And he remixed it, right? Yeah. Remix it just for the video. Right. So right. we put drum samples on it and we fixed it.
2: Yeah. Right. And it's so, so, and honestly, Mike, it sounds better.
0: I know, but but here's the thing. It's I've people who watch the video and they're going, I hate that snare sound. It's like, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> I know, wait a minute. That's not it. I I'm sure you I'm sure you know of the story, but did you
2: use like a sample from Lars or did you use like a Yeah,
0: I mean they're samples from Lars and they're and they're favorites, you know, that Randy and Bob would use yeah. over the years. From black you know? album stuff? Yeah, like that same era. Yeah. You know? And you would blend it and use it so it would be consistent. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a surprise, but like I said, I was just—I was just so weird to see when they released the video and people going, "I hate the sound of that drum." And it's like, <laughs> it's like that's not—it's
2: <laughs> like it's yeah, it's like James said in one of the one of the videos, "Don't read the comments." Did okay. you guys also tune the vocals a little bit for that?
0: Uh, probably, probably. It's one of those things where you know, I know people. You obviously use AutoTune a lot, and there's that sort of element of it. James's vocal is not really conducive to auto-tuning. I don't hear it much. Mm -hmm. Most of it is a burst. Most of it is rasp. You know, you can't tune that. Uh, What you can do is you can take little parts of it and pitch ride it up and down, but you can't just throw it through auto-tune. It's going to be confused.
2: People say like, oh, I I can't stand all the auto-tune on S&M. And I'm like, I I don't really hear that. No. I, I don't think, so you can kind of set that record straight. There's not a lot of like Antares type no god share no. like auto-tune in 1999 on james hefty no, that's just what he no, said not
0: at all not on sm no but that stuff was all live you know the i think the,
2: the we only
0: did a tiny bit of overdub but because it was one of the new songs
2: uh, on no it leaf wasn't clover. one of the
0: classic ones yeah it was no leaf no leaf clover
2: is there okay let me ask you this mike i was gonna ask you this about kind of each of the eras we've already mentioned so saint Anger world has the presidio shit that's Future box set type stuff. So, is there an actual recording of No Leaf Clover, like a studio version of that song?
0: No, it was done live.
2: But they never recorded it by itself. No. Okay.
0: Not that I know of. No. We we were working with everything. In fact, when there was there were two parts that needed to be, or two or three parts that needed to be resung because it was a change in the song. And so we actually took this took the sound of the symphony and we put it through speakers in a big. In, the, in a tracking room so that that leakage would match Yeah. so cool. that you wouldn't because all of a sudden you'd be like oh this is a live show he's playing in front of an orchestra and a crowd and if you just had the vocal by itself it'd be weird it would be, yeah. you'd notice it right away yeah so oh, it's like sure. no we gotta we gotta recreate that environment with what's there
2: is there anything they recorded in the load and reload era that didn't make either of those records is there any sort of thing we don't know about like a forgotten song that was maybe they didn't dig or a demo that never got fleshed out no load and
0: reload i think you know i'm sure the guys have been very upfront about it they they put everything on those two records you know and they appear to regret it you know that they didn't decide to filter it
2: they do appear to regret it which kind of bums me out i actually think it's really ambitious and really cool and i actually kind of like almost every song of those albums okay so after saint anger that's when you start you get the call where Lars says, bring this guy on to multi track all of our shows, which in 2004, 2005 must have been no joke. I mean, so you get the call, can you do that? You're like, yeah. How do you put that together? Do they say, hey, you have a budget of whatever, put whatever re- rig you want. We need a redundant rig to catch all the backup shit. Were you kind of like heading up the operation of getting the, what's is it, is it oh, officially called Live Metallica?
0: No, there wasn't, there was there was not a phone call I could make to have somebody <laughs> build me a, a system you know I I tried to put cobble together what I knew from the studio and what I knew was now going to be available and would actually survive the touring part of it when I first went out I was I was just recording the shows and then it it became well now I want you to record the tuning room because tuning room back then used to be a couple little tiny micro amps
2: yeah a little you know little and a couple of
0: yeah and like a little tiny PA and that was like wait a minute We can actually like work on shit and we can record it. And it's like, okay, so now my job changed from my side gig was recording the live shows. My real job out there was to record the tuning room and keep track of all that. And then a few years down the road, the question came, do you think you can mix our live shows and have them out, you know, by the next morning? Hmm. And I was like, well, I'm going to do it on a laptop. And back then, plugins and stuff was not very good. Yeah. You know, so it sounded like it was on laptop, but I was like, "Yeah, sure, I'll I'll do it." Everything with Metallica, you start out simple and then you just pile it on. <laughs> right. So now it's now it's multi-tracking the shows, mixing them while you're traveling to the next show, tuning room, and keeping track of all that stuff. Yeah. You know, so it it, it was fatiguing. You know, I did that for 15 years, and it got to the point where the technology got better with the internet. So now we could actually send the show files to people who were sitting in a recording studio who could do a much better job of mixing it and they they weren't on tour dying you know from lack of sleep and and constantly looking for internet access oh my god we're at the venue i got to check check the internet speed okay it's not here all right i got to fi- i got to find a hotel that has it now i Upload shit from McDonald's because it was the only good Wi-Fi I could. So, buy. Yeah,
2: never underestimate the, McC- the McCafe. <laughs> exactly. So, Mike, what are you when you're mixing those those shows? So you're just getting stems. you're getting a kick drum and a floor tom and a left guitar. Kirk James, are you just adding like compression and EQ? Like, what what's the basic? If you're that kind of turnaround is super fast, what's the basic? thing you do
0: once we switched from live amplifiers and cabinets and iso bit boxes and we went we went yeah we went to the fractals yeah all of a sudden it was like oh my god we have consistency yeah so if there was an issue or something wrong i just had to jump to a different show and grab the guitar solo like the first part of the guitar solo and drop that in you wouldn't really hear it so it was mixing from a template for sure.
1: And that's definitely like the live version of kind of what they do in this or what you would do in the studio too. It's like, hey, let's take apart from this and put it there if, we, if need be.
0: That's what I always enjoyed about it, though, is my goal was to make them sound like, what did they actually sound like when you're standing in the arena? I wanted it to sound like what people heard, you know, warts and all, as they say.
2: Even if you're sort of taking uh, the
0: beginning of the Fade of Black solo from a two yeah, nights I mean, before. Yeah, I mean, no, I. here's the thing. You can fix it, but that's not what the fan experience, they remember when one of the guys made a mistake, right? They remember yeah. being part of it. Let's just try and make it not embarrassing for the person. Like literally, I can fix a little bit and I would massage it. And it was, most of it was done through EQ compression and that. And try and just make it like, okay, let's not get embarrassed. about. It. Let's not have people laughing.
2: Do you remember the show where I called you the tuning room guy? Once again, <laughs> it was a lovely rainy day in St. Louis, uh, June of 2017. It was the first night that they had to build that weird thing above Lars's drum kit. And it was very clear that it was everyone's first time building it. They had to work out the kinks. And um, the clamshell. There was there was a big the clamshell, <laughs> but there was a big fade to black snafu that evening. Where and I've actually had Chad on the show and I've talked to Chad about this. But mm-hmm. James's guitar was programmed for fade to black half a step off, and Chad came out to fix it, but it didn't fix it. And then James did kind of like a roundhouse kick and kicked the guitar. I have heard the live recording of that show and that's all kind of there. And it's like, it's nice. It's nice to hear that. Yeah.
0: I mean, there's things that go wrong and there's no point giving somebody something they're not happy with. You know, when, when the, when the guys played at the, uh, the Aussie Osborne, when he got that award from the, uh, from the sobriety people and we did the, uh, the Nokia club, right. When Kurt goes to do the solo, it has a, the pedal has a complete meltdown. And I mean, it just started screeching and screaming, and I was able to get that out of the show. And it's like because nobody wants to hear that. That wasn't that was right, that's, totally. that's not a musical mistake. That's not anything like you know something didn't go quite perfect. It's like no, that's that's a horrible thing to have happen. You know, yeah. so that kind of stuff I would clean up. And again, I would always make the mistakes smaller. I wouldn't take them out because that was part of the fan experience,
2: which is cool. I mean, that's like the finesse of that job, right? Don't you're not triggering it out or like replacing it with robot
0: shit you're
2: you're preserving the experience without putting the squealy faux pas in which no one wants to hear that on a live album over and over exactly so you've become definitely a more trusted guy hopefully at this point they know your name is mike (laughs)
0: i've i've been called (laughs) mark a few times by by lars (laughs) sorry about that sorry
2: sorry (laughs) nickel so then you're you've been on tour i mean they they toured for most of those couple of years and they took a little bit of break I'm, I'm trying to work into a little bit of De- Death Magnetic era. So the two new songs they were playing live, the new song and the other new song, you've talked about Volturis. Yeah. There's this idea in the—this is unclear, and maybe you can clear this up. Was Volturis the name of the song that the band named the song, or was that a fan-generated no, name for no, that, that song? No, that
0: was that's actually—that was a, the real lyric. The real title.
2: But it wasn't like one of the little nicknames like a uh, uh, new wave of British heavy metal ATM that becomes Atlas Rise. That vulturist was what that song was going to be called. It was a
0: creation of it was a vision, you know, that James had lyrically. Like I said, he was tapped into some of my Latin knowledge to know whether he'd conjugated the word properly.
2: <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I love the idea of you guys having like a conjugation conversation. If yeah. we conjugated this correctly? Yes. And the, and then, of course, the first, the new song, which I think was maybe going to be called Death Is Not The End, which had bits of end of the line in it. Does that, do you, does that ring a bell? They only played it like four times.
0: They were put out there because it was probably a way to, to let people hear something new. Yeah. But at the same time, it didn't really fit into an album. Volturis was, from my perspective, it sounded very punk.
2: It totally, punk oh, yeah. rock.
0: You know, yeah, and those notes that he had to hit the whoa, whoa whoas, yeah, and that, high, super high. I mean, that you know, if you're a guy out on tour, I mean, that is a tough thing to do. And I recall in Bilbo, Spain, when they still had that song in the set list, James opened his mouth and nothing came out, <laughs> it was just like, okay, well, maybe this is not the best song to throw that into a set.
2: So when you're recording the songs, you're multi-tracking on the road. Where, where were you in relation to the stage? Were you in like in a truck somewhere?
0: No, I was on stage right in monitor world because that was the only way to kind of keep an eye on the equipment and what was going on. And that's where I got my split from, my audio split. I wasn't mixing during the show. There was during Death Magnetic. I think it was for the probably the first, like the two year, first two years of the tour, I had a small SSL console in a road case and I set that up in the tuning room. So I would have be able to record the guys, and I just I had a lock, I, you know I had a digital line that would run to the stage, and then I would try to mix the show as much as possible. So then after the show, I only had to do a couple little fix ups, like it's like oh I missed the solo, oh I got to do this, and I could just jump back and jump you know punch in.
2: So in those in those early days, you were having to mix the show from the night before during the day before, well or maybe there was a day off. In but... the early
0: days, I was getting about eighty percent of the show actually mixed through this console. Then it became, well, now we don't want to bring the console. We can't do it. Can we do like a, like an easier tuning or setup? Cause they didn't use amps anymore. Now it was fractal. So it's like, I could put it all in a small rack. So it kind of migrated to the laptop. It's like, okay, we're going to try and do this through a laptop just because of logistics.
2: It's just a lot going on. A lot to think about. Okay. So Vulturist was the name that you're right. It's t- totally a punk rock song. It doesn't really make sense. The other, the first new song ended up becoming Death Magnetic, couple All Nightmare Long, and mm-hmm. End of the Line. So then you start making that album. Was there a conversation with Bob about like, oh, I'm not making the next Metallica album? Was that kind of a, an amicable, like, eh, it's time to move on, time to get the new blood in? Or was that kind of like a bummer f- a little bit for everyone, even Metallica?
0: Certainly, going through the same anger. I mean, that was very draining for Bob. You know, he took a lot of flack from people. Oh, you want to be the bass player Oh, you want to do this? You know, I wish, you know, I wish Bob Rock got cancer and died. It's like, who says stuff like that, you know, and it affects you personally. And, And it was just kind of, I think it's the same for that. It's the same thing that I realized three years ago was I just was not bringing any more to the table anymore. So I think I think Bob recognized that where he was for years had been discussing with the band we we should go back and maybe do like some you know master puppets type stuff let's re-explore that whole thing and it was just like shut down no but then when rick rubin walks in and says that we're in the control room listening to master puppets mm-hmm. you know it, so he was so he was able to get the band to agree to go back and write and revisit what their inspiration and where the roots were Bob was such a good friend, and it become so close to them. They were like, no. Were yeah, it's like no. when my
2: wife tells me I should get a haircut, and I'm like, what do you know about <laughs> me? And then I just meet Mike for the first time tonight, and yeah. he's like, you would look good with short hair. I'm like, guess what, babe? I'm getting a haircut tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you need, I mean, honestly, yeah, sometimes you need someone, some fresh, fresh blood in to sort of help you see an idea a different way. Yeah. And that does very much feel like the calling card of Death Magnetic. I kind of always call it Injustice for All part two, because mm-hmm. you, you referenced earlier, it was like math rock. That's like definitely their second progressive metal album.
0: You know, and if you've played along with the records, with your guitar, you've noticed that they went back to E. They were no longer in the flat tuning, which is for most singers and most band members, it's just easier to play that every night and do that. But my recollection is is it was intentional to bring it back to the key of E, so that it sounded like the way they used to sound on right. their older recordings. It was, you know, obviously harder to sing because <laughs> the singer is no longer twenty-five years old. It's like you know, you just you're just a different voice and the way you sing. I think they did that for Hardwired
2: too, right? Is Hardwired yes. also yeah. an E standard? Yes. Um, Okay. I think we're going to do a whole episode with you on Death Magnetic if you're willing to, and a Hardwired episode too. So let's just hit a few small things. So sure. How about the fact that in that three hour making of you're in almost every shot, Greg Fiddleman's in almost every shot, not a lot of Rick Rubin. And so I understand he's a very hands-off. I'm not saying he didn't do any I'm not saying he didn't do anything. I mean, he's one of the great producers of our time, but he does seem sort of absent for a lot of the making of that album. It really seems like a lot of you and Greg Fiddleman putting it together.
0: Yeah, I mean, no, it was, I mean it was definitely Greg putting it together. My take on the different types of producers there are. There's some people who are just like really musically knowledgeable of recordings. And so what they bring to it is, does Rick play an instrument? Not to my knowledge. You know, does he know what all those pieces of equipment do? Could he walk up and run one of the consoles? Probably not. But that's not that important. People go to him because he has a a musical encyclopedia. Right. So he just he just has a lot more to draw on. And understanding what does a fan want? What do the fans like about that? You know, and I'm I you know, I've noticed that majority of Rick Rubin's work over the last 10, 15 years has been helping artists reconnect with their past. I know he does a lot of work with new bands, but has there been like a new band that has runaway success because of it? No. It's kind of like he's he's just got a great ear. You know, and he, do, he doesn't need to know what the name of that piece of equipment is when he points out and goes, can you put one of those on it? <laughs> you know, He just knows that it's going to sound better, and that's great. That's where a guy like Greg Fiddleman, who is very scientific and knowledgeable in music also, but he he's able to kind of you know keep everything under control and sounding great.
2: Had you worked with Greg before, or was that your first time?
0: No, that was my first time working with Greg. But because I was in the Metallica camp, I was the liaison for all the riffs, all the recordings and everything that was going on. So I always was working with Greg to help the band get what they they were after. I'm sure he would have probably preferred that I I wasn't in the middle of all that kind of stuff. But it was kind of like the band handed this to me. And I was kind of, Lars didn't want to sit or anybody want to sit there and go through 4,000 riffs. So Mm -hmm. the obvious person to put in the middle is me. You know, and get it Mark. Yeah. Yeah. You Mark. Get Mark to do it. You know, <laughs> can you, can you get this down from 4,000 riffs to 1200? So it fits on an iPod. It's like, okay, I can do that. Cause I got a good idea of what you guys all like and what's probably interesting and stuff that you would probably go. That's not worth exploring or it's too similar.
2: So you filtered the riffs.
0: I did have that role. Yeah. Interesting. It's not like I'm sitting there picking the 12 songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. No, but there was was clearly a filter because I'd been around them so much. I have an instinct on this is probably something that somebody's going to enjoy. And this is something that probably they would just go, I don't know, get rid of that, delete.
2: (laughs) So, okay. So let's talk about the Beyond Magnetic songs, right? The four songs that they would end up playing at the 30th anniversary gigs that didn't make it how close were those songs to making the album were they always kind of like ah they don't really fit
0: no i think i think it was they were always contenders i think it becomes a, a question about if you start to put too much material on an album and what your vision is and what you're after it can kind of be distracting i'm always shocked by pop albums that have 21 singles on it right <laughs> totally. no and it's like oh my god who has the attention span for 21 songs
2: were they doing the thing at that point where they were voting on which songs would make yeah, it? Yeah, I think
0: yeah that's a that's a normal process for it's every kind of a
2: democratic yeah, yeah. for
0: everyone. But again, you like to float it to an outside person who comes in fresh, and I think that's typically where management comes in. Yeah, and will have an opinion.
2: How were your comings and goings with uh, Peter Minch and Cliff Bernstein? Great. Pretty, they seem like pretty great dudes to me. I mean,
0: I can tell you, you know, Metallica is probably the only artist I have worked with where there was we never had a record company person show up. <laughs> yeah they would show up sometimes at the concerts and it would be like push them away there was you know metallica they they do everything they run and they absolutely creatively control everything that's going on but you know peter mentioned cliff bernstein are their music industry icons they've got great instincts on it so it's it's a great thing it's not like oh god we're dreading our managers coming today it was like oh thank god they're coming in and we're gonna get some fresh Fresh perspective, and they're going to say something, you know, that we most likely didn't see or don't see.
2: The little bit that I've been able to see about how they interact with the band, it just seems like they've always really trusted yeah. the guys yeah. creatively, 100%. which is what you want. Yeah. All right, so two projects I want to get to before we bid adieu. You were you on site for the uh, Grimy's gig, the from the Basement gig? Yes. Huh. you were on site for that yeah. so that's our hometown ethan famously yeah. almost went to that
1: show i got an invite to go to that show a, a friend of mine who was a local promoter but he was busy at a mic he was doing a michael bolton marathon i was at a, in a michael song, bolton gig i was multi i was multi-tracking his live, <laughs> stuff. i was on tour with my band at the time and I, I, we were literally in kansas city finishing the last show of the tour i was coming home the next day and it was like oh i can't go with 180 other people I was so bomb.
2: So, what was that like for you, Mike?
0: That was probably the sweatiest, hottest, tiniest room that I've been in. I mean, the, the band did the best they could. I mean, it was on a Mackie console. I mean, it was like a. It was like this is really small. When I recorded it, I think I only got twelve tracks. Was all I could get off of that whole thing. So it was. It was very. You know, it was commando for sure, as we call it, commando show, commando performance. But it was still great. You know, I mean, I don't know how that little tiny bit of bicycle barricades stop people from just storming the stage. <laughs> I guess maybe
2: snipers. Maybe that's the only yeah. explanation. Just they told them. Uh, There's
0: some big security guys who were giving them the eye.
2: Yeah. That's why they had me there. They had me on site to just basically. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So before we hit hardwired and then he- kind of hear a little bit about what you're up to now, you'd mentioned on the IG live the other night, the, uh, when, when James did the Waylon Jennings, don't you think this outlaw bit has gone too far? The, the, they did like a CMT crossover right at Bridgetone arena and there, you helped him record that song, people ask all the time, don't you, don't you think James would make a great country album with maybe T-Bone Burnett or whatever? Has there ever been any kind of studio rumblings of a Hetfield-esque, Mama Said-type, solo, country-ish thing? Yeah
0: I, yeah, I mean, I've definitely heard it. I think that experience of recording the, the Waylon Jennings song was also a little bit of an eye-opener. But here's the thing. I think he realized how much work it is. And I think he appreciates that when you're just one person, a solo artist, sometimes being the decision-maker on everything, it's maybe not the best thing. Like, you do need somebody to come in as a a person to edit your ideas and kind of keep things on track. I mean, he showed up and he cut that drum track and he was wearing shorts, he had headband. He He played the drums on it? He played everything. Oh, really? Everything on it. That was the whole point. That was the whole point of it. Wow. Was he did that? And I'm sure that, you know, it was an appreciation of okay, it's a lot of hard work. Yeah, (laughs) you know. I mean, he was sweating, exhausted. It's tough. It's a it's a snappy track.
2: It really does as much of an as an alpha as he seems to be. There are moments, and I see it a lot in tuning room videos, honestly, where he seems very happy to let Lars drive the ship on like, what are we working on? And he almost seems Sometimes Lars will get a little stuck and be like, "Well what do we want to do?" And you can tell James is like, "I don't know, you tell me, I've relinqu- I don't want to make that decision, which is seems to be like a, almost a counterintuitive thing about him i, I wouldn't he seems like a very control driven person, but maybe through the years he's just learned to be like, Lars deals with the set list
0: I think it ties back to what I was talking about, where sometimes you just let you have to stop and just listen to what other people's ideas are and let them follow their idea. yeah, you like most musicians you discover how valuable somebody else's opinion is. You may not like it, but for God's sakes, at least try it.
2: Yeah, I'm been <laughs> like, you know, telling Ethan that for 4 years.
0: <laughs> that's the frustrating part. It's, it's like, "Hey, I got this idea. What if we try this?" and it's like, "No, I don't like it." It's like, "But we haven't heard it. Just just try it. Maybe the failure of that idea will give you an idea on something that's better." It's like you got to go down that road. And I think that's kind of the the creative thing when all of it rests on your shoulders as a solo artist. It could be perhaps having some disappointment or unhappiness with when you pursue your own ideas. And at the end of it, you're like, oh, it's just not as good. I'm not as fully creative as I thought it was. I do need to collaborate. Definitely within the Metallica camp, there's always been that thing of, even for myself, was when you do Metallica, that's all you do. It's not a hard rule. There's no threats. There's nothing bad that's going to happen. But it's just it's kind of like a community spirit. Like when you do this, you don't do anything. You don't go work for other people in between. You're either on the bus or you're off the bus.
2: And Dave Mustaine was off the bus. So uh, <laughs> So moving into Hardwired, so Greg gets the big Greg gets the big call, right? He's going to be the, the 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 we call him kind of the new Bob Rock. And we say that affectionately because I I do think Hardwired sounds You know, there's some issues with like Death Magnetic had some some of that like um the brick walling type of stuff. It doesn't really bother me as much as some people say. But Hardwired has more of that like really saturated guitar thing. I love the vocal sound of Hardwired. Greg, it's the gig. Was he up for it? Was he excited about that?
0: Oh, of course. Of course. I mean, from what I saw, it was uh, sonically between the two, it was, you know, Death Magnetic went to somebody else to mix. I think it was Andrew Sheps that did it. And so there was always that kind of a thing, well here's what's cool and here's the new trend of what's happening around the studios and the people in LA. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And it's very tight and compact sounding. And Metallica with with Bob has always been like stereo lush. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're in the middle of it. Death Magnetic was just like, it was just like a mosquito in your face, you know? And, you know, and Greg's Greg's a guitar player, Greg's a musician, you know, his band was Rhino Bucket. So he comes from a musician's experience so he was able to kind of find a happy medium you know and he mixed it greg got to mix that the album so he so he was he was part of the recording and i can't tell you how many times when i'm recording and it goes to somebody else to mix and it doesn't sound anything like what we've been listening to right the entire making of the album it's like what <laughs> what ha- like a lot of people will be like what happened i love the demos you know, it's not because the demos were rough, but it's just sonically, there's this real tendency to compress and make everything loud and get really narrow. So Greg definitely expanded it out a bit.
2: What about, okay, When you, I'm I'm thinking now of like images of you and Lars and Greg and Kirk doing the leads, uh-huh. which it's always fascinated me that Lars is so involved in the comping of that. And it just seems like the goal was to just get bursting bursts of inspiration from Kirk. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then maybe you piece it together democratically later. Yeah, which is all on film. It's all it's all in the making of. Yeah, it's all there. No, I
0: mean the thing with Kirk is Kirk has a hundred ideas. Yeah, and you know if he if he plays something, and you say just play that again, so we get a little bit better. It's gone. You know, he can't. He's <laughs> yeah. just it, he can't. He's just has to create something new every time. So it's not like you can automatically go. Okay, I wrote a solo. And it's like, no, it's just, it's a flurry of ideas and Lars enjoys it. He loves the guitar solo part of it. So he takes it on and he gets right in there, rolls up his sleeves and says, okay, when James is doing vocals, it's not like, it's not like Lars is in there conducting. him, telling him what to do. It's like, and, you know, Lars is like, no, that's James's thing. I have a you feeling know?
2: James would not love that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, but, but Kirk, Kirk does. Kirk just loves to free form just,
2: you know, James' just... vocal world seems very vibey. Like, it seems like you guys have made a little area. There's a little lamp. He's got a keyboard to find some notes. He's usually mm-hmm. holding a guitar for comfort. Yep. Is, that, is that in like the main room, the main tracking room, or then you just make a little bungalow?
0: Um, no, yeah, just, no, we'd make a bungalow. Yeah. We went to the point where we actually got an ISO booth, and it was just like, no, nobody wants to stand inside a carpet room with, right. you know, that. there's no vibe. It's just not open breathing and stuff. But it changes. I mean, I'm sure if he could do them all in the control room, he would.
2: He's most comfortable there. Absolutely.
0: Hmm. You know, talking, talking through a talkback switch.
2: is you know, weird, yeah. Yeah,
0: it just takes something away from sitting there with the person talking to them.
2: Did you get to a point with Greg when you guys are maybe doing a vocal day and you're like, hey man, that take 10 was really magic. I really think we should flag that for the record. Or... I
0: don't know if you had an opportunity to count how many computer screens. <laughs> I had in my vicinity so I was keeping notes to so that I could if somebody wanted to jump back and hear something at least I knew what was going on so I I was listening but I was very much preoccupied and, and again that's the job of the engineer or assistant engineers to let the producer listen to what's going on and talk to the artist I shouldn't be jumped I don't feel I would be correct if I jumped in and said, oh, that take was awesome.
2: It's a pretty great lesson you've given us in the last two hours of just how to be good at that job in terms of how to how to show up in a big way and what you do and also how to get out of the way. I think a lot of people miss that about what we do. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's kind of getting out of the way. All right. So you ended up splitting the camp. You said you felt like you kind of hit the end of the line and no pun intended and didn't have as much yeah. to offer. You had mentioned that tomorrow you're in the studio all day with uh, DJ Ashba. Yeah. Guns N' Roses guitar player, 6AM. Is 6AM still an active band?
0: I don't think anybody's been active in the <laughs> last year. <laughs> Have you heard of this thing called so,
2: COVID? <laughs>
0: yeah. No, I'm, I'm I'm mostly helping him with more technical things. I mean, he's, he's very calm. I mean, he's all over his music. It's his solo project. He has a passion for it. There's just little technical things that come up, you know, and rather same thing. It's a bummer for me. To know that he's sitting in the studio trying to figure something out with software or hardware interface when he should be making music so i get i get called from him to just come in and like hey how do i do this you know and it's like oh we can get this we can do that you want to
1: be there to allow him to keep that creative creativity flowing yeah he
0: doesn't he does not need any musical direction from me whatsoever i nod my head when it's really good <laughs> you know like that's encouraging but certainly not going to get you know, interfere with that process.
2: I saw him. My wife and I saw Guns in 2012 here in Nashville, and he was with the band at the time. Amazing guitar player.
0: And he's just—he's got really great musical depth. What he's doing right now is something that you know that peop- nobody's done it. Being a live guitar player and doing EDM, but it doesn't—it's EDM with the guitar. But it's not like big power chords. You know, it's a really cool integration of sounds and melodies melodically play but actually performing and interacting because most of us who have been to an edm show or a dj show know that that's just a rented interface and they're just turning they're turning the knobs it's playing off of a jump drive the whole show is mastered mixed and ready to go everything up there is just playing along so it's cool that he's trying to do it and it's challenging
2: it is pretty cool well mike thank you for your time we had a really fun day trying to figure figure out how to get together. But I'm grateful we <laughs> was did a man. Slow start, and I'm, right? and I am grateful for your time. I'm grateful that you didn't call me a jerk when I said you were the tuning room guy uh 4 years ago.
0: <laughs> That's okay. My my wife called me a sound checker when she oh. when telling her mother. What, what is does he a he sound do? checker? I think he's a I think he's a sound checker. I think he's the guy who goes check one, <laughs> two.
2: <laughs> oh my god! So it's a little more involved than that. A little, you know, making yeah.
0: eight Metallica albums. But I was, I was quite, I was quite fine with that being called a sure, sound checker. That's fine. That makes Whatever easier. you say, babe.
1: It's better than when I've been out teching for bands and the show's done, and I hear, "Hey, Rody, give me a set list." I'd rather have to be called sound yeah,
2: checker. I'm surprised you don't like that, Ethan. <laughs> well, Mike. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate you've taken the time I appreciate all the work you've done and uh, I'm glad that we got to hang out today I'm glad I got to hear your story and I'm looking forward to hearing kind of more deep dives about the the work you've done we're gonna do like a I don't know a 15 part I'm thinking Ethan maybe a 15 part 4 hour each (laughs) series maybe called like Jump in the Studio with Mike Gillis just something easy listening cool well, there you have it. Mike Gillis, such a pleasure to hear from him, to have him lend his, uh, his, tell us his story about Metallica. I loved it. I loved everything he's had to say.
1: It was amazing, man. I mean, that that dude, I mean, what he's experienced in all the years he worked for the band, all the records he worked on, all the touring he did with the band, it's like, I I feel like there could be a part three, a part four, a part five. I mean, yeah. he he's just a wealth of knowledge in that world. And, and just hearing, you know, His not even just the Metallica stuff, but just his knowledge of like digital editing and how he got into that, and then spearheading the live recording rig and all that stuff. You know, that was more from part one. I know, but like the dude is just an inspiring person as far as you know a work ethic and and doing what you love. Well, we're going to be talking to Mike again in the future as we
2: continue our Year in the Life series on through Death Magnetic, Lulu, Hardwired, Live at the Basement, etc. And uh, we're going to be doing a Patreon Q&A with Mike also and uh, all sorts of fun, nutty stuff. So uh, you know what to do. You can leave us the review. That's the easiest way to support the show. Leave us a review or share about us on social media. You can tag us in it. We'll retweet and reshare all of it. It really means a lot to us that so many of you are still on the ride with us. The show continues to grow. And uh, we love you guys out there. Take care of yourselves. Take care of your families. We'll see you on the flippity-floppity piece. Adios. <laughs>
0: If you were our advisor, what would you say? Then I would say, delete that.